times that we are not a creedal people. By that I mean that we don't have a creed to which we ask all members to subscribe or that we recite every Sunday. That's just not the style of our church, though we understand some churches do have that style. But in the Apostles' Creed, we find a statement that almost all Christians can agree on, uh, our church as well. And so we've been reciting it as I am preaching through the creed. It's divided into 12 lines. That's been historically how it's been viewed. And we're taking it line by line in this series on the Apostles' Creed, Know What You Believe. So let's read the creed together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Someone said, uh, well, why is the word Catholic in there? Because that's a denomination. Well, almost anything you put in there could be a denomination because we have lots of different names for different groups. The word Catholic is an archaic word. Back when the creed was written, it meant universal, and that's what it means. So in Methodist, Lutheran, Episcopal, Orthodox churches, when they recite, we believe in one holy Catholic church, they're talking about the universal church, not about the Roman Catholic church as such, okay? So that's a little explanation about the creed. There's some more things to explain as we go through the creed. Today, I'm talking about he ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the theme for today. There are lots of thrones in the city today. There are all kind of mock kings and queens that are sitting on thrones, and they have scepters in their hand. In fact, my own grandson became a king this last week. Was I thrilled? I would have to say, yes, King Brady. He was king of his preschool, and you see him there in his royal garments. I didn't picture the queen, but the queen, Annie Mae, she got into her role even more than my grandson did. Her mother told me that ever since they picked her name out of a hat, and she became the queen of carnival at the Little Red Schoolhouse. She's been insisting on being treated as a queen. <laughs> at all the meals and all her dealings, she is the queen. And it's been days since they picked out the hat, and I could tell the mother was really getting tired of treating her like a queen. But she waved the whole time like this, you know, just like the queens are supposed to, and I mean she was into it. And my grandson had his feet up on the on the, the uh, little cart he was in by the float by the time that it got through. But not her. She was still just doing this, you know, really getting into it. She was happy to be the queen. Well, the tendency to want to sit on the throne, be the king, be the queen, that's just part of being 
human. In fact, it's part of being fallen. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 14 how the morning star, he wasn't satisfied to be one, of, be one of the great created beings in the world. No, he wanted to sit on the throne. He wanted to ascend to the top to be the most high, and that's why he fell. So today I'm going to tell you why you ought to be glad and delighted that Jesus is the right hand of the Father, not you. Why, you don't have to sit on the throne. The request of James and John's mother, oh, please, let my sons be on your right and your left when you come into your glory. The other disciples were upset about that. They all wanted to be on the right and left. You know that. That's what they were upset about. Look, it should be me. It ought to be me. What about Peter? We're the ones. We need to be in those places of authority, those places of honor and position. Well, today we recite, he ascended to heaven, which is recorded in Acts chapter 1, 9. He ascended before them in a cloud, received them, him out of their sight. That's the ascension. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. It is a glorious confession often used in the New Testament to describe the position that our Savior has in heaven now. I want to read for you a passage that I just think is wonderful. I hope that you'll listen, that you'll read through, that you'll pay attention. It is Romans chapter 8. Verse 28, one of my favorite verses, a marvelous verse, important to know as a follower of Jesus. And we know, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who is raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, 
nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No condemnation, no separation. This is the heritage of the children of God. How do we know this? But because he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, he sat down to claim the Father's ear. You've seen it in movies, you've seen it in dramas, you've seen it a thousand times. Somebody next to the throne who whispers in the ear of the king. It's that picture we have in this metaphor. He sat down at the right hand of the Father in heaven and he is making intercession. He is speaking to the Father on our behalf. That is what you do when you intercede. When you pray as an intercessor, you're praying for somebody else in need. And when Jesus, our Savior, seated at the right hand of the Father, speaks to the Father as intercessor, he is speaking on our behalf. He is interceding for us. The scripture says he is our advocate. Maybe you don't need this. Maybe you've never suffered from self-condemnation. Maybe you've never said to yourself, oh, I don't deserve to be a child of God. I don't deserve to go to heaven. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. Look at me. Look at the mess I've made. Maybe that's never happened to you. But it's happened to me. I am glad to know that Jesus, my Savior, sits at the right hand of the Father and he makes intercession. He is my advocate. There is an accuser of the brethren. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. He also accuses the sistren, okay? He accuses the sisters and the brothers. And Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father as our, inter as our intercessor to plead our case. Now, he pleads our case not on the basis of how good we are. It's not as if Jesus has to point to my merits or your merits when he pleads our case before the Father. Because it is on the basis of what he has done that he intercedes on our behalf and he closes the mouth that condemns. No one can condemn us. Why? Because it is Christ who justifies us. He descended all the way from heaven, all the way to the cross, all the way to the ground, all the way, the, the creed says, to hell. He descended as far as the dead can go in order that he might take upon himself all our guilt, all our sin, all our shame, and bear it for us on the cross. Now this one who has paid this penalty for us sits at the right hand of the Father. And when anybody brings an accusation, you included, against your status as a daughter of God or a son of God, Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, intercedes on our behalf and silences the accusation. Now you need this. You may think that's pretty theological. 
But you need this. You need this tomorrow when you are falsely accused. When you start feeling bad about yourself. When you do your moral inventory and discover that you are way from perfect. You need this. Some of you have started giving up on yourselves because you've got a besetting sin. And you say, this thing is grabbing me over and over again. How can I be worthy as a son of God or a, or a daughter of God with this thing that grabs me? And you need to know that Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, bore it all upon the cross. And he makes intercession for you not on the basis of how good you are or how perfect you've been. He makes intercession for you on the basis of what he himself has done. Okay? He sat down to claim the ear of the Father. Now note again. He sat down to give us pinpoint accuracy. I want to read for you a text from Colossians 3.1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You say, that pinpoint accuracy, that sounds like a weather forecast or something. Well, you found me out, all right? I thought about it as I read this, set your hearts where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. God wants you to do a calculation about the direction of your heart. Now, Christ is seated, okay? So it's not a moving target. You don't have to worry that tomorrow you've got to change directions with your life. You set your heart where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. You set your affections there. God, I want to love you. Christ, I want to love you like you have loved me. I want to set my affections on you where you are seated at the right hand of the Father. I want to set my desires here, Lord. Everything that I, I desire, I want it to fit into this direction that my life is oriented toward you, seated at the right hand of the Father. I want to set my volition, my will, and my choices. All of this is about the heart. It's the inner you, your affections, your desires, your choices, and volition. All of this in your heart. Set your heart where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So orient your life this way. Now, Paul goes on to say in Colossians chapter 3, set your mind in that same place. Maybe you have been fighting intellectual battles. And you've been going back this way and that. And you need a firm foundation for your intellectual life. You set your mind where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of the Father. You acknowledge with your intellectual life that Christ is the awesome Lord of all, that his name is above every name, that he is seated at the throne of majesty. And you think this way, you reason this way, 
Your, your reasoning begins with Jesus as Lord. It's got to begin somewhere, right? Where are you starting your thinking process? When you believe in Jesus, he claims the intellectual process. And you set your mind on him, the exalted one, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, seated at the right hand of the Father. That's how you orient yourself. Paul goes on to say in that passage, where Christ is seated, I want you to remember, you set your heart, your affections, your desires, your volition, you set your mind, your intellectual life, where Christ is seated. And you know that your life is hidden with Christ in God. I like that. You've got a hidden life. Your life is hidden. It's like your baptism illustrates, only it's permanent. You know, you are permanently immersed in the person of Christ. You are crucified with Christ. It's no longer you that lives, as Paul said, but it is Christ that lives in me, the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. My life is hidden with Christ in God. John talks about how if we are uh, believing in Christ, we are in his hand. And then he says, the Father takes his hand and he puts it over the hand of Christ. And our life is hidden there securely, forever, with confidence in Christ, in God. You fix your mind there. You start there. It is the orientation of your life. It is your spiritual, your intellectual, your emotional GPS. Christ is right there, seated at the right hand. Of God. It lifts me out of the trivia of life. It helps me from get, it keeps me from getting confused about the stuff that bombards me every day, as if this is the substance of life, as this is the ultimate revelation about what life is about, these troubles, these hardships, these difficulties. This is not it. It is Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. And I cannot be separated from him. There is no separation. I am his forever, and my life is hidden with him. I love this no separation because I worry about it sometimes. I know you do too. You know, you think you've wandered off so far, God can't find you anymore, or you can't find your way back. Sometimes you get that idea that it's, you're just gone, and you're the prodigal who went too far. But if you know Christ, you're always his, and nothing can separate you. Nothing presently in your life can separate you from the love of God. Think about it. Your life is hidden. You're putting your GPS on Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father. Nothing presently in your life can separate you. Nothing in the future, nothing present, nothing future, nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God found in Christ Jesus, the Lord. I hope you can sing, you are loved. I hope you can sing, his love never fails. His love never fails. I mean it when I sing it. His love never fails. His love isn't failing me today, though I'm going through the valley, through hardship, through, through danger. His love never fails. Hallelujah. His love never fails, brother. 
His love never fails, young person. It never stops. It keeps on going. It is an unfailing love. And it carries us through the hardest times in life. When Paul wrote Romans 8, he was thinking about those hardships, those difficulties, those dangers, those troubles that come our way. And sometimes we suppose they indeed have separated us, but no. They have not. Nothing can. He sat down to give us pinpoint accuracy. He sat down because he was done. Look what it says in the book of Hebrews. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down. All right? That's Hebrews 1.3. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down. Later on in the book, but when this priest, that's Jesus, in contrast to all the high priests who came before and the whole sacrificial system with all its blood and its dead animals, in contrast to all of that, there was repeated year after year, day after day, the fire on the altar, the sin offerings just burning continually, the stench of the burning flesh filling the camp in the wilderness. In contrast to all of that, when this high priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down. I like to think of Jesus sitting down after he endured the Garden of Gethsemane, praying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not my will, but thine be done. And got up from the place of prayer and confronted those who came to arrest him and said, why are you coming to me with these swords and sticks as if you couldn't take me somewhere else? What have I done? After the trial before the high priest and Herod and then Pilate, Pilate handing him over to be flogged, the soldiers beating him and spitting on him, carrying that cross to Golgotha, nailed there and hung up to die. Hours on the cross, exhausted, dehydrated. He said, It is finished. He released his spirit. It exhausts me just to read about what Jesus went through on our behalf. And it comforts me when I read, he sat down. It's good, isn't it? It's good. He sat down because he was done. When he said, it is finished, your entire and complete Sin debt was paid. Every crime for which you could have been convicted, every sin that plagues you, all the guilt about the activities of your life, they are nailed to the cross. He went down into the depths to take them off your shoulders and take them off your soul and purify you from the sin that troubles you, besets you, brings shame and guilt to your heart. 
That's why he died, and he took it all, every one of them, all of them, the sin of the world laid upon him. He died in the darkness, alone for you and me. And he cried, it is finished because it was done and there is no other sacrifice for sin. There's no need to have a sacrifice again. He did it once for all. He completed it. It is done. Your sin's paid for. What wonderful news. What liberation for you. What peace you could live in if you could appropriate the truth of what he bought for you at the cross. What joy would flow through your life if you could live in the reality that he sat down because it was done. It was finished. Sin was paid for once and for all time. You say, well, what's my role? Confess with your mouth. Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. It is incumbent on you to respond to all that God has done in the purification for sin. It is incumbent on you only to believe, only to receive. You cannot add to it. You cannot take care of some of your sin yourself. You can't make it up. You can't balance it out with good works or deeds of righteousness. There is no religious or moral activity that you can do which will purge you from your sin. You already know that. If you're trying to do that, you know what frustration it brings to your life because you, you never know if you've really done enough penance. You just got to receive what God has done in Christ and let God, through the work of Christ upon the cross, clean you up from head to foot until you know you are as white as snow. And your sin is buried, is gone. He paid it all. That's why when we confess, he sat down. It is such good news. He sat down because he was done. He had completed his work. He had completed the perfection of those that God is making holy. It says in Hebrews. And the perfection is the whole, the completion. And the making holy part is what God's up to in your life. What you must do now is cooperate with God in the work he's doing in you. Now, there's one other thing that sat down means. And I want to read this text for you. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. He sat down because it's your turn. And it's my turn. He sat down because his work was done, and now his church is unleashed in the world. 
He ascended to the Father, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and his disciples went out and told the world what God had done in Christ. And God confirmed it with the signs that followed. That's how Mark records it. Somebody may be saying, well, wait a minute. If I turn to Christ, what's in it for me? I mean, what do I get? What's in it for me? Well, you know, you get your sins forgiven. That's in it for you. You get a home in heaven. That's in it for you. You get a place at the banquet table in heaven. That's in it for you. You have this glorious life. You have this position where you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's in it for you. You have a salvation, a rescue from sin that you can never lose. That's in it for you. Well, if I believe in Jesus, will I be more successful, though? Will I make more money? Will people like me better? Will I have less trouble? Will I have less sorrow? If I believe in Jesus, will life be more comfortable for me than it was before I trusted him? I mean, really, what's in it for me? You see how what's in it for me is completely the wrong question? If you're still asking that, you just didn't get it. You hadn't got it yet. The Son of God, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, he laid down his life for you. He went all the way. He descended from the highest place and went to the lowest place. And he did it all on your behalf. He laid his life down. Now, now how do you participate in this resurrected life he has? You lay your life down. That's what you do. You give it all. Everything about you, you lay it down. He laid his life down. You lay your life down. It's an exchange of a life for life. Here, Jesus, here's my guilty, shameful, tattered life, and I want you to have it, and I want your glorious life in me. And God says, yes, I'll make that change. And now the question for you is, once you've trusted Jesus and laid your life down, is what's in it for him today? What's in it for him the words I say, the deeds I do, the way I live my life, what's in it for him? It's not what's in it for me anymore. I got more of the riches than I could have ever gained. I got life in Christ. Now the question is, what's in it for him? That's why the apostle says, whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all for the glory of God. Everything for his glory, that he might receive glory. What's in it for him? This life you're living on the planet. He sat down. He was done. You're not done yet. He left you here in order that you might shine your light so people would look at your life and glorify the Father who is in heaven about you, concerning you. That's how you live now. You set your GPS on Christ who is seated at the right hand of the Father. You stand in the confidence that he intercedes for you every day. You walk in boldness and faith knowing that he has paid your entire sin debt. You drag around no sack of shame. You bear no burden of guilt because he bore all that at Calvary. He bought for you the liberty of your forgiveness. So you set all that down. And you live every day saying, Lord, I'm so glad you sat down.
and you finished your work. And today I want to live for you. May every word I speak and everything I do bring you glory. Because the only question I got left in this life is what's in it for him? Bow with me, please. Somebody here never quite understood the gospel. You thought you were supposed to live a good life. And today you heard that Jesus died for your sin and there's nothing you can do other than receive what he has done. And at this time of response, I hope that you'll do that. As God convicts you and the Holy Spirit draws you, you'll just say, Lord, I believe in you. I'm setting aside all my efforts to make my own way, to make myself acceptable to you. And I'm receiving what Christ has done upon the cross. In his death and resurrection, I'm trusting in Jesus and him alone. Maybe you've done that, but you've never publicly identified with the body of Christ and been baptized as a believer. It's important. It's important that you let your light shine, that people know where you stand. It's important for him who died for you. Maybe that's your response today. God, we pray. God, we ask. Have your way in us. In Jesus' name.